0: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up today... Georgia is receiving billions of dollars from the federal COVID-19 relief plan. So where's it going and who's eligible to apply for funding this go round Well, there will be three state committees that will decide and we'll find out what that's all about plus Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church and its initiative to provide food for those in need. These are community conversations we have every day, and we know they matter. That's coming up in a moment. But first this, the World Health Organization is calling for a moratorium on COVID booster shots. Why? Well, they say to allow other nations a chance to vaccinate at least 10% of their populations. And it was a press conference held just within the hour. Dr. Bruce Elward is senior advisor to the WHO director general.
0: Africa as a continent for example we're at less than five percent coverage in terms of you know two doses of vaccination we're down around less than two percent coverage actually and this contrasts with the numbers in North America in Europe and other areas where we're getting upwards of 50 percent coverage now.
1: The WHO is asking those nations with the financial means to acquire the COVID booster shots to hold off at least until September. Meanwhile, closer to home, Republican State Senator Burt Jones wants Governor Brian Kemp to ban school districts from implementing mask mandates. And that would require the governor to hold or call a special legislative session. Now, Senator Jones, in a letter to Kemp, cited, quote, such mandates are not based on scientific data and it will have significant ne- negative long-term effects on our children's educational development and will be an overwhelming and un- unnecessary burden on our teachers and parents who already endured so much over the past year and a half. Senator Jones went on to say that there is perhaps no more pressing issue before our state. Now, joining me right now with a reaction to our fellow lawmaker is Democratic State Senator Kim Jackson. Senator Jackson, Secretary you taking Time, I really appreciate it.
3: Oh, thanks for having me, Rose. It's good to be
1: here. Let's begin with this, though, because Georgia's fully vaccination rate is still just around about 40 percent. It's been hovering around this percentage for some time. Are you optimistic at all that this will increase or will just probably stay here in this this range for a while?
3: You know, Rose, I I actually remain optimistic that more people will get the vaccine. As we've learned more about the Delta variant, uh, people are starting to get a little more fearful and and therefore responding. I can say from my perspective, I work as a priest and I serve a community of people who are experiencing homelessness um, and our rates of vaccination and and that community has gone up Mm -hmm. as a result of news about the Delta variant. So I'm optimistic, but it's going to take time.
1: As a whole, the U.S. is just about 49.7 percent in terms of fully Vaccination, but now with at least one dose, it's at seventy percent. So, if you want to follow the trend, you believe that hopefully at some point Georgia will get more towards at least maybe close to a fifty percent fully vaccination rate. That's a that's a that's a that's quite a. (laughs)
3: It's it's a big lift. Um, I will say, Rose, we've been incentivizing people in my community um, by providing $50 gift cards and uh, that's been quite an incentive to get folks vaccinated. I know DeKalb County did that too. I think those types of measures are going to be really important. We need to be more than 50%, right? In order for our communities to be protected, in order for us to really get back to business as usual, we need to get those vaccination rates up really quickly.
1: But you, you know, and one can argue, well, we know that perhaps in certain populations in certain parts of the state that those incentives may work. But obviously, when you get out to the rural parts of, of Georgia and where the vaccination rates are really, really extremely low, that those incentives don't work. So is there any other initiative or any other campaigns or whatever that can be brought to this population to get folks vaccinated? What can work?
3: Well, I think we've got to pull out the stops. We need to get every influential person out there talking about the importance of the vaccination. Um, As a clergy person, certainly I value the voice of faith leaders, and I believe that um, our pastors who are serving in rural congregations need to be really clear, Um, both our faith leaders who are in mosques and in synagogues, I think that's one of the places. And also it begins at looking at our former president. I I really hope that our former president um, will step up and actually speak up and get his constituents to go and get vaccinated. I think that Donald Trump has a powerful voice, one of great influence. um, That could be a real game changer.
1: Governor Brian Kemp was on the Fox News program, Fox and Friends, earlier talking about his decision and why he is not in favor of mask mandates. Take a listen.
0: We don't need
2: mandates to know what to do. We need to talk to people about getting vaccinated to protect themselves from the delta variant and these other variants that are out there we're starting to see that happen again here in Georgia. As our vaccination rates have gone up but you know last year at this time i trusted the local school systems working with the superintendents to do what's best for their kids uh, in conjunction with their parents and their local community these mandates haven't worked and it makes it worse when governments are not consistent
1: there's a lot to unpack there let's start with the latter when he said it makes it worse when Governments are not consistent. And to be fair, a lot of people have said that the CDC's messaging has sometimes been a a, a little bit confusing, the back and forth. As it relates to that, what do you think?
3: Right. So I think that the CDC's messaging has changed as they've gotten more information as COVID, as we've learned about it, and as COVID has changed um, itself, right? We have a variant. And so with that change has come a change in messaging. Um, I actually agree with Governor Kemp that it is confusing when governments are not all on the same page. And so uh, this is where we disagree. I would suggest that the page that we need to be on is where we are mandating masks across all governments, city, local, um, school districts and state that would be uh, really clear for people as opposed to leaving us all up to make our own decisions
1: well then let's talk about your fellow uh, state lawmaker there and senator burt jones who uh, just authored a letter to brian kemp Uh, you heard me read some of it i don't know if you've had a chance to to read it but what do you make of senator jones there about the calling a legislative session to ban mass mandates in schools
3: Right. With all due respect to Senator Jones, I, I 100% disagree with him. Um, if we're going to call a special session, we need to be calling a special session to talk about evictions and to make sure that we can keep people in their houses. Um, if that's what we're going to spend our time on, right? Um, there are much more pressing issues. Um, and I stand, on, I stand in opposition. I think that we need to call and make sure that every school district puts masks on children. Because here's the thing, um, I've buried a child, Rose. I, I have presided over a funeral and been with a family as they have wept over the loss of a child. And there is no greater pain than a family losing a child. And while Senator Jones says that statistically it's a really low amount of children that die, um, why are we okay with any number of children to die? Um, we are asking something very simple. is to put a mask over your face. We're not asking you to jump over hoops, you know, tie your hands behind the back. This is really simple. Just cover your mouth and your nose. And if that saves one child's life, I think it's worth it.
1: In this letter to Governor Kemp, Senator Jones writes, I'm quoting here, quote, simply put, the common cold and flu are more harmful to our children than COVID-19, end quote. Senator Jackson, is there some danger in that type of messaging from your fellow state lawmaker?
3: It's absolutely dangerous. I mean, there are a couple of things. One, children don't exist in pods in and of themselves. So while a child may have a lower chance of of contracting COVID, when they do get it, they come back to their homes, they come back to their communities, to their faith groups, where there are older people who are more susceptible. And again, I wanna reiterate that over 500 children have died of COVID-19 in our country, over 500, that's 500 families, right? That's 500 families who are grieving the loss of a child. And so um, you know, I really urge Senator Jones and, and all of my colleagues uh, to say, let's do this for everyone because one child loss is enough Um, for us to be able to say we're willing to to do this uncomfortable thing that's like, it's called wearing a mask.
1: Senator Jones, although he is not official, but it is rumored that he is expected to make a run for lieutenant governor. And obviously, as you know, with your your Republican colleagues there across the aisle, uh, for what we know is the endorsement of Donald Trump supporters could be key in someone winning If you have a chance, are you going to try to talk to him about the dangers of this message, as you just alluded to? Because, as you see, the children cannot be used as pawns, as in in a way of of what you put it. Do you expect to talk to him about this?
3: You know, Senator Jones and I I actually have great respect for him in in many ways. And my whole thing with Senator Jones is I, I understand his need to to reach out to his constituents. And I would just encourage him to to really focus on what his president did well which was we have a vaccine um because of president trump's work on you know on project warp stream we have a vaccine that's extraordinarily effective. Celebrate that, tout that, right? Um, lift that up and encourage people who are likely to vote for you, uh, Senator Jones, uh, say like, let's get on the Trump train and get a vaccine like Trump did. I think that's the message that I would encourage. and That's the message that saves lives versus this message that ultimately is deathly. Um, and I, I know Senator Jones, I know he loves children just as much as the rest of us and that he, he cares about our children's lives And so um, I would strongly urge him to make sure um, that we are willing to do this thing of masking up in order to protect all of our communities, not just our children.
1: Coming up after this segment with you, we're going to talk about Georgia and some of the funding it's getting and how and where it will go in terms of whether it's infrastructure or any other quality of life sectors that so many Georgians can benefit from. How are you hoping uh, through your lens that with all of this funding that Georgia gets that what areas that you hope will not be overlooked?
3: Yeah, I really hope we don't overlook housing. It is such a key fundamental piece uh, for our livelihoods. And so we have so many people who are standing on the precipice of evictions. Evictions have started in some places. Um, so I would hope that that would be an inter we would begin immediately to disrupt that. Uh, and then another place that I would point to is actually making sure we do take care of our children. Um, our children have experienced a great amount of trauma over the last year and a half, and there will be some ongoing needs. Uh, so let's invest. Let's invest in school counselors, let's invest in community counselors and uh, making sure that our children have access to that care that they need. And then finally, uh, we need to expand Medicaid. And honestly, that doesn't cost us a dime to do it. But we absolutely need to expand Medicaid to provide health care to Georgia's working poor, to people who are going to work every day and um, are afraid to take off because they have they don't have the money to pay for to see a doctor um, and they don't have the money to take the time off. So those are kind of my high priorities when I think about what we do with our money.
1: Well, in terms of expanding Medicaid, we you and I could spend a whole nother hour talking about the history of that here in Georgia as it relates to the General Assembly and and the, the challenges there. Um, right now, Georgia sort of in a, in a standstill with Medicaid expansion because Governor Kemp, the medical waiver plan and the White House not exactly seeing eye to eye on this as it relates to those work requirements.
3: Right, we are in a standoff that's absolutely unnecessary. Uh, Friends of mine like to talk about things being free 99. Well, Medicaid expansion is free 99 here in Georgia um, due to the incentives that came down to us from the federal government. So this standstill is one that's solely rooted in kind of some political ideologies that ultimately leave people, Unhealthy. They leave people. Um, I mean, without with delayed medical care, you can die. Uh, so this standoff, due to some strange ideological notions that people should have to work in order to have access to health care, um, is is leaving people out to lunch. And we need to we need to address that really quickly.
1: And finally, Senator, I do want to get your thoughts on obviously another pressing issue, not just here in the Atlanta area but throughout the nation and Georgia, and that is the crime issues here. The increasing Percentage of violent crimes here. We've heard different. Everyone has a different (laughs) approach to this uh, from the GBI. Vic Reynolds is going to be on this program Friday. Um, What's missing in this conversation that people aren't addressing instead of folks going back and forth and blaming each other?
3: Right. Right, I think one of the things that's missing is really trying to address some of the underlying issues that um, we have in our in our communities. And one of those things I think is access to mental health care, access to new ways to resolve conflict. Uh, so what we're seeing with these violent crimes is that these are folks who are arguing and who don't have the tools um, that they need in order to resolve that conflict in a way that's not deadly. And so I, I'd like to see more, more resources out there on the street to help people with conflict resolution. Um, Let's get jobs that pay people well um, so that they're not having those additional stressors, right? Uh, stress makes us all not behave at our best. And, and I do very much believe that some of our underlying stressors of people not having the jobs that they need, not having food and secure housing, that all of those lead to us not being our better selves and that therefore sometimes committing violent crimes.
1: Democratic State Senator Kim Jackson, as always, we appreciate you taking the time. I really do. Thank you.
3: Yeah, thank you so much, Rose.
1: And Closer Look continues. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. It's not clear when the nation or the world, for that matter, will be clear of the COVID-19 pandemic. That we know. And what we also know is this. Every state in the nation will have an opportunity to improve, as we talked about her all, all the time on this program, those quality of life sector, sectors for its residents. And that includes other areas, such as infrastructure, everything that... As we like to say, all those tentacles that apply to our daily lives and through past legislation, well, states are receiving funding. But here's a question. How much and how is all this going to work out? Well, we know there's only one woman with the answer to that, right? That's Jen Wade, who's the grants manager in the Office of Planning and Budget for the state. Uh, Jen Wade, welcome to the program. Boy, I really put you on the spot, didn't I? (laughs)
2: <laughs> you sure did. Thank you so much for having me. We're super excited about this program, and just really grateful for the opportunity to get that out in the community.
1: So let's back up. Let's make it all clear so folks don't understand. They start emailing me asking for how can they get some some funding because there's been a lot of federal funding coming out of Washington for states. What are you exactly? Your department is tasked with how much and and what does this relate? Is this related to the American Rescue Plan?
2: Correct, so um, just to back up for just a second, so my role specifically is um, really to ensure that as the, as the Grants Division Manager, that we continue to oversee the um, funding that was implemented and the compliance associated with the CARES funding, mm-hmm. that's still going as well, so the CARES Act funding, as well as obviously the, the newly enacted American Rescue Plan funding, which um, the Jobs and um, Infrastructure Committee is focused on with this open application process.
1: Okay, so now you you we're talking about the American Rescue Plan and we're talking about infrastructure. So break that down for our listeners. I mean, I, I think often when we think of infrastructure, we automatically just think of bridge, bridges and roadways and, and, and that. But there's a lot tied to that. So can you give our listeners a little bit more when we talk about infrastructure, what exactly type of projects we're talking about here?
2: Sure. So um, the three committee focuses, as you said, we have broadband infrastructure, water sewer infrastructure. And for those two, we're really looking at um, the guidance and that guidance points to investments in water, sewer, broadband infrastructure, making improvements to um, clean drinking water, supporting vital wastewater and stormwater infrastructure, and then expanding access to broadband Internet.
1: Let's start with broadband and Internet, because that's been such a huge issue here in Georgia. Partic- particularly because we both know of the, the rural communities here. And there's been so much made that, look, connecting is, is really, that's where you begin. You have to connect these communities. But, look, listen, a community in Albany might be different than a community up in, in North Georgia. So how does that work? How do you all decide what, you know, who, is it by organizations? Does it go to counties, cities? What's the process there?
2: Yeah, so I'll back up a little bit further. So the eligible entities for this particular program, it's all on our website as well, but we're really looking at um, like a broader community or broader um, industry impact for this. And so we're looking at, you know, government organizations, whether it be counties, cities, townships, special districts, um, industry, industry trade associations, um, nonprofits and trade and professional associations. So that's kind of what we're looking at. And Treasury really is the one that kind of determines um, eligible um, eligible uses of this, right? Mm-hmm. And so what we're looking at is for broadband in particular, um, Treasury defines that and lays that out as um, applying for funds to hit the hardest need communities, those mm-hmm. underserved communities. And they've actually defined it out. Um, I'm not the broadband expert. Sure. So, um, but Treasury does lay that out. They um, address the broadband needs and areas that are currently underserved. They define that as lacking a wireline connection Mm -hmm. that reliably reliably delivers minimum speeds of 25 megabytes per second download and 35 megabytes uh, upload. So that's kind of how Treasury defines Mm -hmm. that underserved need.
1: Does this also include uh, Jen in terms of the actual physical putting in the broadband? What, I don't want to call it piping. I'm not an expert at this, but the, you, you and I both know right. it's not in the old days we could plug something in, but it doesn't work that way anymore. So does that also include actually physically putting in, in place, the whether it's a, some type of fiber optic or whatever have you, that needs to be in place too. Because in rural communities, you know, we've we've had conversations with guests and they've had to stand on their back porch with the cell phone to try to get the best signal because there's nowhere for them to plug in. Their their laptop or PC. So does it also include the actual physical infrastructure here?
2: Correct. So for the broadband piece itself, I mean, you're talking about fiber optics, you're talking about the the labor that goes into that, the subcontracts that they will have to, you know, um, award out to make sure that infrastructure is put in place, um, any maintenance that they can include, obviously, within the guidelines of Treasury um, and you know, making sure that, that those reliable speeds happen. But those underserved, you know, we keep hitting on those. There are there's a lot of um, nuances to broadband. Mm-hmm. I have learned a, a whole lot about it. Um, but there's a lot of nuances and, and, and I am not going to be the, the one scoring these, right? So our committees will be scoring those. So the broadband committees will focus in. they'll be looking for um, everything that meets treasury guideline. But when we look at the served and underserved, we're looking at, you know, if, if one person is served on the street, you know, you and I wouldn't count that as served, right? But mm-hmm. broadband has very specific parameters around what they deem as served. So we're kind of allowing folks to still apply, utilizing a map that we're going to push out. Um, and so they'll be able to look at that. And if one is considered served, they can still make the argument that it's you know not reliable or that mm-hmm. it really isn't served.
1: And, Jim, before we continue, how much money are we talking about here in, in the total pot in terms of funding for these three areas, the broadband, water, and sewer
2: yeah, so for broadband, we have thirty million three I'm sorry, three hundred million. For water sewer infrastructure, there's two hundred and fifty million. And for negative economic impact, there's three hundred and twenty five million. But these are all planning amounts. Mm-hmm. The total award for the state for the first tranche, Treasury is doing two tranche, two tranch um, fundings, but we we just don't know if we're going to get that second tranche. So we're really focused on the money we have in front of us. And we don't know what we're going to see. We don't know the volume of applications. So those mm-hmm. are just planning amounts right now. Those are flexible. If we get an influx of broadband um, applications that you know exceed what we thought we were going to get, then we have flexibility to add more to those, each of those pots of funding.
1: I want to shift now to this economic fallout committee, because that seems like there's a lot packed into that.
2: Yes, that is probably um, going to be one of the most difficult for our committees to field as far as reviewing because we, we've already seen an influx of folks, you know, going onto to the website, um, applying through Georgia grants and economic impact, the negative economic impact committee is going to see a lot of applicants for that. And that it's runs the gamut and everything from, um, you know, addressing housing and homelessness, mm-hmm. um, educational disparities, hardest hit community needs. Um, assistance to workers and families and like job training, mm-hmm. um, and speeding up recovery for you know our hardest hit industries like tourism, travel, hospitality. those are the ones that Treasury lays out. But there's an opportunity to expand on that. Um, if there's a different sector that was hit hard
1: as well. And we've done so much on this program in terms of that there are some issues when we talk about the negative economic impact. You mentioned housing, but also food. And, you know, I have a segment coming up just after this one where we'll talk about food insecure areas as well. I'm imagining all of that is packed in there too as well.
2: Correct. And again, you know, we're really, the committees are really going to be looking for applications that, show a broader community or the industry impact right and so when we're talking at a a level for housing and whatnot you know with Senator Jackson mentioning you know housing and the eviction moratorium you know we have other funding programs through CARES and mm-hmm. ARPA um, DCA is implementing our homeowners assistance fund mm-hmm. they are also implementing our emergency rental assistance fund they're doing a phenomenal job with that all of that can also be found through our COVID-19 response um, tab on our opb.georgia.gov website. Um, so we're doing a lot there. While ARPA has a, an overarching, um, you know, broad spectrum of things that can be under that negative economic impact, you know, this is really looking at that broader community, you know, reach.
1: So it, so let's let's deep dive, take a deeper dive into that because I think for our listeners, and and you mentioned with the eviction in the housing, and, and we know that that's a whole separate issue, uh, but are you also in this negative economic fallout? Are you talking about organizations or programs that are on the ground, grassroots, direct services to people? Or are you talking about uh, maybe like a bigger organization? I'm just using them like United Way that also then takes that funding and distributes to other <laughs> organizations. You see what I'm saying? So it kind of like trickles sure. down. Is that is that?
2: Wh- a, yeah. So that's a great question. So we, so nonprofits are allowed, um, they're eligible applicants. So if you're a nonprofit, you can apply. But you know, when we talk about that broader impact, so United Way could apply for this, you know, in Georgia, and have a program where they're going to, you know, dole out that assistance to if it's an individual assistant basis, mm-hmm. you know, we're looking for an organization or a trade organization or something like that to come in and kind of supervise that because, you know, this isn't just a, a big pot of money, they're still, you know, very stringent, um, extensive reporting requirements that we have to deal with as outlined by Treasury. And so, you know, for someone like United Way to come in, demonstrating, you know, competencies and capabilities to actually manage this grant funding and get those reporting requirements turned around so that we can have, you know, that compliance with them and know where this money is going, right?
1: How challenging you've, this is your area of expertise, Jen Wade, is this the largest pod that you've had to sort of oversee in your career?
2: this is um unprecedented not just in the amount of money um but but really you know award amount the guidance from treasury um as you probably know from the cares act when all of the crf money um came through georgia the guidance changes so much Mm -hmm. you know just before we had the committee meeting literally that evening the guidance was updated and changed so we are just asking folks to be super flexible to be patient with us because you know we are monitoring treasury their guidance and just trying to um, be flexible and flow with that as well. And um, it is very unprecedented it is the largest pot of money I've seen. And it's, you know, it's one-time funding. This is not something that, you know, we can just prop up something you have to worry about sustainability and things like that. So that's why, you know, to facilitate this, this round, mm-hmm. doing an open application, you know, competitive application process, it really allows folks to show what they're bringing to the table, show mm-hmm. their competencies and capabilities.
1: Before we move on to that last and final one, dealing with 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 sewer and waterways, but Jen, how do you ensure there is equity equity in terms of the distribution? I mean, you talked about the changing criteria. You all have to follow these federal guidelines, and you and I both know that sometimes with some organizations, you know, they may be missing one or two criteria, but they really do good work. Um, are you all? Do you have any flexibility in working? Uh, with some of these folks before you fully grant them just to make sure that they, you know, can meet the criteria and the guidelines, or do you just not have room to do that?
2: That's a really good question. So we've actually built a whole lot of flexibility into this process, Um, not only in the timeline, right? The timeline that we have posted, we've let folks know that's a tentative timeline, but we do have the flexibility. If we see a project, you know, that may... Um, be a you know an organization that just was missing something in their application we've actually built in applicant presentations to be able to call them in you know a- and answer questions you know if there's you know what a, a committee member may see as a whole in their um their project implementation right mm-hmm. because the, you know this is a you know, these funds go out, you know, you know, pretty far into the future. We can bring them in, you know, have them answer some questions and kind of fill in those gaps to allow the committee that flexibility to to work with those applicants.
1: Now, let's finally, before we wrap up, let's talk about the sewer and, and waterways. And you and I both know that not only just Georgia but throughout the nation that that's a lot there. What are you all looking to focus on here in, in awarding funding to for this area? So
2: Treasury also outlines kind of what they're looking for with that, Um, you know, addressing the impacts of climate change, building or upgrading facilities and transmission of drinking water infrastructure. Um, That's distribution, storage Mm -hmm. systems, you know, water and sewers kind of got its own nuances as well, but constructing publicly owned wastewater treatment infrastructure, facilitating water reuse, um, all kinds of stuff that fall under that umbrella. But again, I think the committees are really going to be looking for partnerships, and that broader community impact where they're looking for, you know, counties to pool funding together, there is a um, scoring criteria where, uh, you know, match funds will help you. And so traditionally in the grant world, um, as a general rule, grant funds are not able to be used as match Mm -hmm. unless otherwise, you know, stipulated. And these ARPA funds do not have that stipulation. So we're allowing the folks that, you know, receive ARPA funds to um, use those as match to kind of bolster their water sewer projects. So their broadband projects. you know, or negative economic impact. Um, If they have other, you know, grant funds, they just need to check to make sure that those are eligible to be used as match. But, you know, it really provides them an opportunity to bolster their already existing county or city ARPA fund.
1: And is there a specific window in terms of timeframe for organizations and entities to apply? And then after that, how long will notices be sent out?
2: Great question. So we, um, we just opened the application period on August 1st and we had... Um, a plethora of applicants already. What's a, what's a plethora, Jen? Hundreds so far. Well, I shouldn't should say hundreds of submitted applications. So um, when I checked this morning, we've had um, a, a good bit, probably, probably under, um, about 10 maybe submitted applications, but um, hundreds of folks that have gone in already to register in the portal um, to go ahead and kind of see what the application looks like and you know, at least put a proposal name in there, right? So mm-hmm. they're intent to submit an application. Um, So we started August 1st. We will close that window August 31st. As far as grants go, the process is a very, very simplified grant process. It's not like your traditional grant application that folks are used to seeing. Uh, Once the application closes, they can actually go on to our website, um, Mm opb.georgia.gov. On that front page, you can see what our funding opportunities are. As soon as you click there, you'll be able to see a link to the Georgia Grants Applications Portal, and you'll be able to register there. That closes again, like I said, August thirty first. Um, right now, we have a very tentative time frame. We will, our team will start to um, comb through them for eligibility and everything. They will get to the committees for individual review, and we are hoping we set a tentative date right now, of October eighteenth. And again, unprecedented, right? We don't know the volume of applications. Sure. If we get, you know, thousands um, of really good eligible applications, we have the flexibility to move that date. We'd rather make sure everyone gets the time they need to for their applications to be reviewed, and then push that date a little bit further. So. That's tentative right
1: now, October 18th. I'm glad you said that because folks are emailing me. And again, these areas are in broadband expansion, water and sewer infrastructure and ways to mitigate the economic fallout from the pandemic. Uh, Jen, thank you so much. Jen Wade, thank you so much. Grants Manager in the Office of Planning and Budget. Thank you so much for taking the time. Again, what's the website entities and organizations can go to to find out more about this funding?
2: opb.georgia.gov.
1: All right, y'all stop emailing me. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Jen. We'll have you back once you all have made your final decisions and we can talk about some of these projects. Sounds
2: great. Thank you so much.
1: And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlantis Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. You know, we have focused on food and secure communities and hunger many times on this program. And So now we're going to turn to historic Ebenezer Baptist Church. And it's, I believe it's Mana Mondays. The Reverend Bronson Woods serves as the assistant pastor of outreach and young adult ministries for Ebenezer. And he joins me now. Reverend Woods, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
0: Hey, how are you doing? Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me uh,
1: this afternoon. Let's begin here, Reverend. I want to get your thoughts on here because it's estimated that here in our state of Georgia, we're looking at about maybe 20% of the population lives below the national poverty line. This is from 2019. And that's well over a million people. And when you hear this statistic, Reverend, what goes through your mind?
0: What goes through my mind is that there are several people right around the corner who are in need, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: who are in need of nourishment, who are are searching. Uh, That's what goes through my mind and also trying to figure out what it is that I can do to serve uh, during this time of crises. So that's what kind of goes through my mind um, when I hear these type of figures.
1: And then obviously we know with the pandemic, you know, and it's not lost on you and in the work that not only you do, but so many other people, whether it's in a faith-based community or not, that during this pandemic, the need that people normally had, that has been, whether you want to use the word, highlighted, amplified, exasperated during this pandemic, it has been really, it has increased the need for people that people need. What, where are we talking about food or shelter, what have you? And I know you all have seen that
0: yeah absolutely we have as a matter of fact it has caused us to even expand our crisis closet program to address the health and wellness gaps in our community you know our food distribution programs uh, has expanded to now twice monthly a distribution of fresh fruits and vegetables as you mentioned it's called Mana mondays and it's mm-hmm. completely free open to the entire community because we recognize there's a need and all we want to do is simply Uh, be who we are um, as Ebenezer, which means a stone of hope. Mm -hmm. And so we can at least do that. And of course, during this pandemic, you know, know, caused by the COVID-19 global health crisis, we are taking a whole person approach to serve our community that takes in consideration mental health, physical health, and even spiritual health.
1: And you all early on were a site for folks to come in and get COVID testing as well. Uh, we're going to get get into the food distribution. I, if I had to ask, I'm going to ask what areas that you all receive the most calls about. I imagine it probably was shelter and food.
0: That's it. That is it. Shelter and food. And, um, you know, we were, were we're able to to answer um, even through our community partners, such mm-hmm. as uh, in-town ministries and the Martin Luther King Sr., Community resources, collaborative, and others—we kind of come together to address the need um, and and provide answers.
1: In Reverend Woods, you know this, and, and for full disclosure, I, I am not living. I'm not living far from Ebenezer. No. Walk around, you're jogging, you're biking, you what have you. You see the people living on the street who need help. This is not an issue that Ebenezer can fix alone. Uh, we know that atlanta has made a lot of achievements especially from different administrations to different administrations and i ask everyone this about the holistic approach to providing these services for atlanta's unsheltered how do you see where we are as a city in addressing this from a holistic view and and through partnerships what's working what's not working what's missing
0: well one thing for sure um you know as you mentioned uh We're just one church. Mm -hmm. We can't do everything. You know, Um, our community partners help us out a lot. And there's neighboring churches such as um, Wheat Street and Mother Mm -hmm. Bethel down the street and even Liberty. Everyone kind of plays a role. Even Our Lady of Lords. Uh, We kind of come together to collaborate and we divide things up and we, you know, get together an agenda and we press play and get to work. Immediately, um, Ebenezer. Yes, we, we we play our role, mm-hmm. and you know, down through the years, we've been known as you know a um, you know historical church, but we're a very functional church. Um, every day of the week, uh, trying to to address some of these things, and what's most important here mm-hmm. is that we come together as community to be community uh, for the least of these, because they too are a part of our community, whether it be providing uh, the testing for COVID-19, mm-hmm. uh, the vaccinations, uh, food, haircut, hot showers, um, preparing for job fairs. These are the needs of the community right here, right now, some of which existed prior to the pandemic. But needless to say, uh, we represent a peeler of hope, along with some of the other uh, peelers in the community, just playing our part. Because that's just who we are as America's freedom Church.
1: how did Mana Mondays come together?
0: Mana Mondays came together as a response to the pandemic mm-hmm. to the response of the calls that we were receiving, the emails that we were seeing that we were receiving um uh, what this pandemic had caused and so it all began with us providing testing and as there were several cars that were line all around our historic church as we were providing mobile, Um, testing, um, there was additional need. And folks were asking, hey, do you all have food? Mm. Yes, I I have a test, but I just lost my job.
1: Mm.
0: You know, and we're we're not talking about, you know, what people would look at as, well, your typical poor, but we're talking about folks who pulled into the drive with um, fairly decent automobiles who no longer have jobs.
1: Well, we have said and on this program before, the face of poverty yes. may not be what you think it is.
0: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And so we were able to uh, respond immediately. Now, mind you, we've had a, we have had a crisis closet that has been functioning for a little over 30 years, but it calls us to uh, expand and reach out to our partners at the Atlanta Community Food Bank and some of the other partners and to do something more on a larger scale. Um, and then out of nowhere, within a week or two, we had manna on Mondays. Well, then it was like a manna on Saturday, manna mm-hmm. on Thursday. We just want to provide manna to the people who are in need right <laughs> I now.
1: I feel you on that. And so these, right. the, the free groceries that you all are providing, there's no registration, no ID folks just,
0: Absolutely. they just come to the church. Uh, that is it. And we do everything right out front there. There's no, um, You know, I actually evaluated that other churches and organizations, you had to call and register. I said, you know what, if we're trying to uh, be like Jesus, (laughs) let us get rid of the the red tape and just, and just let the captive free, set the captive free and and just be what we are and provide. And so there was no questions. We didn't question how, we don't ration food out. We just provide. Mm. And, um, and through that, you know, We were able to, if you will, minister uh, about the vaccination because we're trying to be good community uh, neighbors, good neighbors in the community. And so we provide food and hey, we also have vaccinations and testing and surely, um, you know, day by day they think about it and then they too become active participants in the community as well.
1: If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Reverend Bronson Woods, who's the Associate Pastor of Outreach and Young Adult Ministries for Ebenezer Baptist Church. And we're talking about it's Man of Mondays, which is providing food for so many people. I want to back up to what you just said, because as you know, getting folks vaccinated now also is is key. It's it's crucial. Have you had to have conversations, uh, Reverend, with folks who were either just hesitant, maybe just didn't believe in it? What were some of those conversations like for you?
0: Absolutely. But of course, I'll drop this disclaimer. You know, I'm not medically qualified. Sure. But uh, but what we do, we provide the space to educate the community. So we uh, reach out to our partners with Piedmont Hospital, led by uh, their COVID 19 task force, is led by Dr. Jane Morgan. Mm -hmm. She's been on this
1: program before.
0: Yeah, who just so happened to be a, a daughter of the Ebenezer Baptist Church, and she speaks so. Uh, knowledgeably um, and informative about all the different, uh, the three different vaccinations, herd immunity, and that has helped. It has proven help. And we've held town hall meetings. We are part of something called the Choose Healthy Life Initiative, uh, of which comes out of um, the United Way. And so, and, and, we, and, and we're part of the leadership of that in trying to spearhead and just provide information because it's more than just shots in the arm, right? Mm-hmm. You know, folks are apprehensive and they have every reason to be apprehensive, but we are here to provide the immunization as well as information and educate them. Um, and, but ultimately it is their decision, but we just want to be present and available.
1: Reverend Woods, as we begin to wrap up, you all have been providing this food with Man of Wednesdays, Man Monday, excuse me. But as you know, also, um, there's going to be a need that's ongoing. Will you all be able to continue this? And I know, especially you and I both know, when the kids are out of school, and of course, the kids have been out of school for off and on. But as the kids have been out of school this summer, we know that for some households, the kids missing those meals it could be the meal they only get a day. But now the kids are back in school. Will you all be able to continue this food distribution program?
0: We not only plan to continue the expansion of our crisis closet, which supports uh, this initiative, but uh, it's a part of our ministry. It's a part of, you know, being available and providing to the to the families to the point to where we're even having a job fair in October. So yes, to answer your question, yes, we will continue to do this work and continue in its expansion, and being uh, good neighbors, and being there uh, for a community that is in need right now. They don't need to go to a church where they are placed on delay. Mm-hmm. We are able to, you know, address things right away. Whether you are a Christian, Jew, a non-believer, we're just hope, and we just hope that you uh, are helped um, through one way or another.
1: Well, speaking of hope, Reverend Woods, where do you hope we will be at the end of the year with this pandemic. Uh
0: I hope we will be done. <laughs> I hope A lot of that... hope,
1: Reverend. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right.
0: Well, help me if you can, right? Yeah. But I hope that, you know, the community is able to grasp to the truth of the matter from the CDC, from the scientists and understand clearly what it's all about and how important their involvement in in participating as community in being immunized, right? And 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 understanding um, how it works, uh, herd immunity, and how they too can save a life, and ultimately. So that's that's what my hope is that we are we will be further than we where we are now um, in vaccinations, and hopefully that the, the you know uh, the virus will be. Uh, uh, on its way out the door. Hopefully, hopefully we get a better handle of it. But we have to play our part.
1: How do you minister this part of history to folks when they're, you know, they have questions? You know, Reverend, why is this happening? You know, I've lost someone to COVID. You know, this is, as we keep saying, extraordinary times. How how do you minister to them about having faith and hope throughout all of this? I'm curious.
0: Yeah, as you know these type of things happen death happens catastrophe and crises happen and i get these questions all the time you know why why and sometimes there is no answer there is no uh, appropriate answer i cannot say that god said do this that's mm-hmm. not the case but what's most important in these type of perilous times is that we as the people of God, uh, the people of the fourth ward, the people of Atlanta uh, recognize what it is that we can do Mm -hmm. to provide some sort of presence in the time of need for someone else. And so the presence provides comfort presence provides security and also uh, nourishment. So that's, that's pretty much how I've been kind of dealing with these type of uh, circumstances like i said even prior to the pandemic Mm. we are faced with a lot of these questions that um, sometimes you know just being there is an answer enough just to you know just to be uh present the ministry of presence means a lot and Mm. it you know goes far
1: reverend bronson woods assistant pastor of outreach and young adult ministries for ebenezer baptist church and it's called manna mondays free groceries don't as they say don't need an id don't need no registration just come on through and this is mondays what time reverend
0: uh at noon 12 noon on the next one we have is august 9th and then we also have august the 23rd so from 12 to 3 while supplies last just pull up to the corner of auburn and jackson street we're out there in tents um biggest day All right. No reservations needed.
1: No reservations needed. Reverend, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for what you all are doing for the community and so many organizations. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Rosie, for having
1: me. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. Of course, you know this is Atlanta's choice for NPR. And listen, if you miss part of this program or any other program, it is always online as it is. WABE.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. And in our podcast, because everybody has a podcast, right? So, so do we. Wherever you get your free podcast, you will probably find Closer Look. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.